Okay. You're going to be blessed this morning, and uh, John's going to come and bring the word, and he's going to do this week, and because of the content and the volume of research he's done, he's going to be on again next week. So we're going to have a double portion. John? All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. A few weeks ago, I had to go to the doctors for a a routine flu jab, as you do. No problem, no issue with that. Then the nurse said to me, um, ah, Mr. Clift, whilst you're here, you haven't had your pneumonia injection. So that was phrased, it wasn't a question, it was a statement. You're having your pneumonia injection. Don't argue with these nurses, do you? So, two days of aching arms, fluey, symptoms, shivery. Yeah. Carol didn't realise what I went through. She... But... I, I thought of it, and it was necessary, wasn't it? It's, it, it's not pleasant, but it's necessary it, to your long-term health, isn't it? Oh, it's worth it in the long run, isn't it? Get over it. <laughs> so this morning and next Sunday, we will look at a New Testament epistle which seems negative in its message. It's an almost unpleasant word to hear. But this epistle is necessary. It's very necessary to the health, long-term health of the church and to the individual believer. Please turn in your Bibles to the epistle of Jude. Epistle of Jude, that's one back from Revelation. And also, if you've got a spare finger, keep it in 2 Peter chapter 2. Two lots of scripture there. Okay, we all there? Now, the Epistle of Jude is one of the most neglected little books in the Bible. In fact, in almost 40 years, of over, I've been a Christian over 40 years, I have quite rarely heard this epistle preached. It's quite a rare thing. So why would it be? Why would this letter be ignored? Why is it constantly passed over? and left to gather dust in the Bible. Maybe, perhaps it's because it's overshadowed by its famous neighbour, the book of Revelation. Or perhaps it's because it's just such a, a brief letter, it tends to be ignored. But I think the real reason that this book is ignored is its content. Because Jude is a no-holds-barred rebuke of false teachers, of apostates, of those who attempt to pervert the teaching of the church. Jude is not about those who make mistakes whilst preaching. It's not about them. Any preacher or teacher can make a mistake, and all 
most definitely probably have. I know I have before. And he is not, he is not meaning people who, who, who go into error biblically. That can happen to anybody. Error can be corrected. Yeah. That's part of pastoral ministry. Yeah. What Jude is warning about, what he's warning the church about, are those who come into the church with an agenda. Now, this agenda can be abuse in all its forms. It can be to financially fleece believers. It can be to cause division in the church. It can be to undermine church leadership. And it can be to spread heresy, false teaching. To believe these people are not out there is to be naive yeah. in the extreme. They are. So Jude is very much a spiritual call to arms for the Christian and the church. And together with its sister pas passage, 2 Peter chapter 2, it is a wake-up call to the people of God. And it is certainly a much-needed teaching in the days we live. To give you a, an analogy from cricket, the enemy of our souls is bowling bouncers. And the church of Jesus Christ is taking its eye off the ball. But I trust God that in this little corner of his vineyard, our eyes will be on the ball. Amen? Amen. Now, that said, we must not make the error of regarding Jude as being overly negative and dismiss its content because it, it seems to lack the feel-good factor of other portions of scripture. Too often, God's people ignore the warnings from scripture. And like Israel in the Old Testament, they say, prophesy smooth things unto me. Or as their New Testament counterparts say, tickle our ears with watered down teaching. No, no. not no. the way, no. no. Hard war truths and warnings from God's word when talked to and heeded by Christians are as much a blessing yeah. as the promises of yeah. God are. Yeah. If you were by a stretch of water and the warning says, stay out, deadly sharks, it's a blessing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if you ignore it, you're in. it's not going to aim well. So anyone who desires, anyone desires to teach God's word must be prepared to speak as Paul declares in Acts chapter 20, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And, that, and the teacher must be determined to speak the truth yeah. without fear yeah. or favour yeah. and let the chips fall where they may. Okay, let's look at the author, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, Jude is a variant of the name Judas, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Judah. And there are several men in the New Testament called Judas, one of which, of course, was the infamous Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ. The Judas or Jude writing here is the son of Mary and Joseph, and as such, the half-brother half-brother, think of this one, of Jesus Christ. Why? 
Because Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Notice Jude does not boast of his family connections. He doesn't say, well, I'm the brother of Jesus, by the way. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't boast of his, of his other brother, James, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But Jude humbly refers to himself as a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. A work of saving grace has been done in his heart. He has gone from John 7 verse 5, for even his, that's Jesus, brothers did not believe in him. He was an unbeliever. He's gone from that to humbling himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, fully submitted under his lordship. Who is this epistle addressed to? Jude is writing, in the, is writing to those who are called and sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, those called by irresistible grace, sanctified or set apart unto God, and being changed from glory unto glory into the likeness of Christ, and preserved, never forget that one, preserved, kept by the power of God. Amen. Those gods who God saves, he keeps. And that is a wonderful truth for all of us here today who name the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as such, Jude is addressing every church and every believer from the early church to the present day. Jude then completes his introduction with words we usually skip over at the start of an epistle. Verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now always remember, when you, if you skip these words, always remember these are the words of God. Yeah. Jude is writing under the inspiration yeah. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. These are the words of God to show us his, his love and his grace for us, yeah. his people. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Verse 3. Jude now launches into the reason why he writes. And I can almost sense his urgency to get on with it, to unburden his heart of the danger that faces the church. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude's initial intention was to write a letter about our common salvation. It means common to all. It doesn't mean cheap, by the way. It means common to all. He wanted to write of the wonderful saving grace of God, for all who belong to Jesus. Amen? And what an epistle that would have been. We'll never know what he was going to write, will we? We'll never know. But Jude, despite his diligence to write this, is constrained by the Holy Spirit 
to change tack completely, a complete change. And he's going to write instead of an urgent danger facing the church. He finds it necessary, or as the Amplified Bible says, he is compelled urgently to write that the church contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, what does Jude mean by that statement? Firstly, what is he referring to by the phrase, the faith? What does he mean? He does not mean the subjective faith that we all exercise in Jesus Christ. I believe that is subjective faith. He's not referring to that. He, he means the definite article, the faith. He means the full sum of revealed truth God has given to us in his word. That is what we are to contend for. The Christian is to contend earnestly for the defense of the biblical truth of authentic Christianity. To contend earnestly means exactly what it says. The Greek word to contend is epikonazomai, which, which gives us a translation to agonize, to agonize. Like an athlete striving to win when they go towards the tape, the eyes out kind of thing, isn't it? Or a soldier in combat with an enemy. We are to contend earnestly. We are to strive with intensity when confronted with heresy. Amen? Yeah. That said, that does not give any Christian license to be contentious with the faith. There's a difference. There is a difference. We are to stand for truth in a spirit of grace, firmly and uncompromisingly, but not obnoxiously or rudely, as unfortunately some Christians have a tendency to do. But many Christians today will back away. They'll back away from standing for truth. They recoil and they compromise when faced with error. Why is this? Why should that be? Firstly, on a cultural level, it's not, it's not really the British thing to do, is it? It's not, is it? By nature, we, we prefer good old, good old British compromise, don't we? In life, we like to find, find a middle ground, don't we, when, when someone dis disagrees with us. You know, let's just compromise, not, not make a fuss. Keep the peace. Let's understand the other person's point of view. Amen? Find some common ground. But, you know, in life, in general life, it's not, you know, we can do that, can't we? It, it sort of oils the wheels of life a bit, doesn't it? Makes life run smoothly. Now, doesn't, doesn't that seem the, the gracious thing to do when, when, when it comes to the things of God? Just, you know, keep the peace. Let's not, you know, let's not argue with someone. No, it doesn't. If they're wrong, they're wrong. It's the wrong. It's wrong, yeah. Not when, we were not when we are dealing with the absolute truths of God's word. The apostles wouldn't compromise no. for it. They were martyred. The early church, were heavily they were heavily persecuted for standing for truth. Yeah. 
the reformers, many of them were burnt at the stake because they would not compromise. When it came to their own commitment to Christ and his truth. And our great example, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, went to the cross in obedience to God's word. It is not gracious or loving to compromise with those who teach false doctrine. In fact, it is positively sinful to do so. To allow, to tolerate false doctrine to come into the assembly of God's people. In the letters to the southern churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus rebukes the churches of Pergamon and Thyatira for letting, for allowing the doctrine and practices of the Nicolaitans, those who taught that the believer can sin as much as he wants and still be saved. Twice in these letters, Jesus will declare his hatred Strong word, but he declares his hatred for this doctrine. God despises, he he abhors doctrine that corrupts his people and leads them into sinful practices. So it is a serious, serious mistake to allow false teaching, heresy, in the name of tolerance and unity, come into the church. The second reason why many will not confess contend for the faith is to be honest they don't understand it very well they have a superficial understanding of christianity a shallow grasp of doctrine we live in days prophesied by the apostle paul in second timothy 4 verses 3 and 4 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The teaching of sound doctrine is not at all popular today. Many prefer the humanistic life coaching, make me a better me kind of teaching. Others love the mystical, the pseudo-false spiritual that comes close at times to New Age paganism. And the diet of this kind of teaching leads to malnourished believers who cannot contend for the faith because they don't really understand it enough to do so. Notice in verse 3, Jude, Jude describes the faith we are to contend for as being once for all delivered to the saints. One of the most foundational, important teachings we have in the Bible. The word of God is all sufficient to make us wise unto salvation. It is all sufficient to teach us the nature of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is all sufficient to equip us to live our Christian lives well-pleasing to a holy God. All that God desires his people to know, to understand, is contained in this book, the Bible, his word. And it was once for all delivered to the saints. Nothing is to be added to God's word. Nothing. Many attempt today to teach 
fresh revelation. Okay? Many try to introduce in the church extra-biblical revelation, or as they term it, revelation knowledge. If you hear that term, run from it. Don't listen to it. Some of these people actually believe their new revelation supersedes what is written. No, no, that's right, Charles. No chance. No, sir. But that's what they, that's what they do. No, it almost replaces, in their eyes, the teaching of Scripture. Others seem, seek to take away from God's Word. Again, very common in churches today. They simply remove or ignore swathes of God's Word that offend, that doesn't fit their agenda or their diluted version of Christianity. No. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16, 17. Some scripture is given by inspiration of God. No. All scripture, all of it, that's right, Terry, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It would do you good. Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, not partly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This faith, this body of, of, of divine truth was once for all delivered to the saints. And this, in its fullness, is what we are to contend for. To sum up, we must emphatically believe there is no new revelation given by God outside of his word. If not, if not, if we do believe that, then we're on our way to being deceived. Amen? Verse 4. For certain men, certain men have crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now compare this with 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there, but there were false prophets among the people. He's referring back to the Old Testament there. Even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresy, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. So Peter predicts their arrival. Jude announces their arrival. Now, when God exhorts his people through his word, we do well to listen, don't we? When he repeats the same warning twice, alarm bells should go off. It should really wake us up. Because there is real, let's be honest, there is real spiritual danger out there. Jude tells us certain men have crept in unnoticed, and Peter warns of false teachers who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. These men, and these days women as well, do not announce themselves with a fanfare. They do not. They come in quietly, unannounced, through the back door and begin, begin their work of subverting, sub- seducing Christians with false 
doctrine. And it could be denial of Christ. It could be denial of the Trinity. That's a favourite one. A false gospel. They could be mixing faith with works. You can be saved if you believe and you do this, that, A, B or C. It could be fake spiritual experiences. It could be false prophecy. Take your pick. Sometimes it's a mixture of one or, or even more. And tragically, if church leaders are not vigilant, these false teachers will draw a following. Peter tells us in his epistle that many will follow their destructive ways. Who do they tend to target, these people? They go for the new converts. They go for the weak in faith. They go for the strugglers. And they'll they'll go for the impressionable or anyone who will listen to them. That there are stern warnings in other parts of scripture about these people. Paul warned for three years. He warned with, he describes with tears. He saw what was coming. He warned the Ephesians that savage wolves would come in, into the church and not spare the people. In Romans, Paul again warns of those who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. In Galatians, of those who pervert the gospel of Christ. And the Lord Jesus himself spoke of of what? Of false prophets in sheep's clothing. These people look the part. They sound the part. They probably smell the part but they are not what they appear to be. It was a real problem in the early church. They battled Gnosticism, a form of a real virulent heresy of the time, and legalism as well. And it's without question worse today. I believe it is. Now, why, why, why would I hold that opinion? These days... False doctrine can come into the church, not only through through teachers and preachers, it can come in via media, through books, through especially the internet. Be careful what you look at on the internet. There's some wackos out there. There really is. And it can come through some, not all, but some elements of Christian TV. You see them on there. And gullible Christians who lacked a discernment that comes from a solid grounding in the word of God can easily become victims of these charlatans who seek to infiltrate the church with their toxic teaching and spurious experiences, all the while claiming they are anointed men or women of God. If their teaching is allowed to take root, it always causes damage and confusion in the body of Christ. In this way, a church can lose its effectiveness. It can lose its witness if this false teaching isn't nipped in the bud. It acts, in a sense, like a virus in the human body. It has to be stopped before it spreads. Now, the church in the Western world, the church in in Britain has had an easy time, really, for the last 
since the Reformation, basically. We, we're not persecuted, are we? We're free to meet, free to, free to read our Bibles, free to preach, teach, practice our faith. Does this mean, does this mean that Satan is uninterested in us? He's not bothered? No. The Bible says we are not to be ignorant of his devices. The enemy of our souls comes against the church in two ways. He will come as a roaring lion with persecution and trouble. Or he'll come as a whispering serpent, as an angel of light with seductive lies that seek to deceive God's people. And it's very much the deception route that the enemy takes against the church in Britain and the Western world today. And he does it with the kind of people that Jude and Peter describe here in the scriptures. Continuing in verse 4, Jude describes these men as ungodly. (laughs) The Greek word for this is asibis. Now, when the letter A is placed in front of a Greek word, it gives that word a negative meaning. For example, in English, the old English word to muse means to ponder. It's a word we don't use anymore, really. It means to think, to ponder on something. Put an A in front of muse, you get amuse, which means to, which means to be entertained without having to think. You see how it works? So the Greek word sebo means to worship, to revere. And when the letter A is added, added to it, we get the word as CBs, it means without worship or reverence. These false teachers do not reverence God or his word because the truth is they are in direct opposition to him and, the, and his purposes. They turn the grace of God into lewdness or lawlessness and immorality. The Greek word is asalasia, meaning without a moral code. And they teach others they can sin at will and yet still be saved, still be Christians. If you please look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Now bear this scripture in mind before I'm going to give you an example now of how these teachers work. Now, before we look at this, this happened. 40, about 40 years ago. Rob, Wendy, Hilary, my late brother Andrew, and to an extent myself, were at the sharp end of this. Back in the early 80s, over a, a period of three or four years, my, both my older brothers and myself, we, we came to a committed faith in Christ, which, as you can imagine, was much to my parents' rejoicing. Yeah. Their prayers over decades were finally answered. Amen? Never give up hope. Never give up hope. As young Christians, we were introduced by a mutual friend that I shall change his name, I shall call him Michael. Okay, that's not his real name. But we were introduced by Michael to a, a man from South Wales called Paul. He was, I would guess, in his 40s. That's what kind of age. Now, 
This man, Paul, would often travel down from South Wales and invite us back to his home in Wales. Paul was a captivating speaker, a, a fascinating man. He was very charismatic in character. He would draw a crowd to himself. Very charismatic in a spiritual sense. He would constantly quote scripture, give words of knowledge. He would prophesy and he would speak in tongues on a level I have never heard before or since. Tongues would pour out of him. His home was very humble. Scripture texts on the walls. No TV. He wouldn't have a TV. He was too spiritual for that, that kind of thing, you know. His wife and six children, all in perfect submission to him. The model Christian household. Now, this man would always dominate the conversation. He would almost pierce the soul with his insight and words of knowledge. He could speak right into you. Sounds great, doesn't it? What a, what a brother to have. Amazing. He preached at my parents' church, and he said a few things there that raised the eyebrows of the elders. Clearly, alarm bells were starting to ring with the people there with, discern, with the discernment to see it. Yes. However, being so young in the faith and biblically naive, I can remember we dismissed this as they're, they're jealous of him. Yeah. That's the problem there. They're just jealous of him. Such was a pedestal yeah. we had this man on. Yeah. Now, this Paul told me, I was only saved about a year. I didn't know anything. He told me one day that he was going to be martyred for Jesus. That's heavy. He said he was going to have his head cut off. It was all seriousness. He told me he was one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. If you know Revelation, if, or if you don't, look it up later on. Okay? Of course, and looking back, an utterly outrageous claim to make. It really is. I believed him. In my naivety, I did. I thought I was in the presence of a Moses or a, an Apostle Peter. He further claimed. Robin Wendy will confirm this, okay? He further claimed he could be caught away in the spirit. What did he mean by that? He meant, he, he claimed he could physically move himself to any place in the world he wanted. Well, was that true? That's true. In his house, he had a map with pins in it. And that map showed where he'd been. But, Rob, that's true, isn't it? Now, that's what occultists do. They call it astral projection. It's witchcraft. That is witchcraft. Now, things really began to unravel with this man. When it came to light, he had been thrown out of churches in South Wales for adultery, chasing women and other stuff. His answer to that was to quote, this is a direct quote from him. Rob will confirm this. He said, 
It doesn't matter because my seed is sinless. Rob, is that true? In other words, he could sin at will and God would not hold him responsible for it. Down here he made advances to a married Christian lady. And then disturbingly, he took an unhealthy interest in the very young children of another Christian couple. Clearly, this man was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometime later, at an Assemblies of God conference in Minehead, my oldest brother Andrew was sat in a cafe. It was a red-hot day in May, very hot day. This man, Paul, came in, sat close to him, looking in his face, started to speak to Andrew. Now, we all remember Andrew, his character. He wasn't given to extremes. He was very grounded, sensible. He was, wasn't he? He wasn't given to floats of fancy or or his imagination, was he? Very grounded man. Andrew told me, I, I, I spoke to him directly about this. Andrew told me that as his Paul, he was close to Andrew, was talking to him. Andrew saw that his face change into a demon. He literally did. What he saw, he said, was horrific. He said the air, it was a hot day, he said the air went icy cold. Whilst, he, whilst his Paul was talking to him. And my brother, he, he, he ran out of that cafe in a very distressed state. Hilary, is that true? But in the providence of God, two pastors were walking, saw him and prayed for him. Amen. That was, praise God for that. But Andrew suffered for, for several weeks after that experience. It, it so distressed him. So, that man, Paul, we then, everyone, we just broke away from him. That was it then, that was it. But lasting damage was done by this man. Our friend Michael was a budding Bible teacher. He was lost to the church because of that experience. He, he was gone. Even today, 40 years later, he still will not fellowship with other believers. Such is the, is the damage that was done to him. But this is how these kind of false teachers work. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness or a license to sin. And they try to corrupt others in the church. For that is their vile agenda. And it is a vile agenda. So, okay, back to Jude. In verse 4, he continues with his description of false teachers. They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the obvious example of denying Christ is Peter, isn't it? Three times he denied Christ. But the word deny in the context of false teachers has a far deeper meaning. It means to deny the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. His deity, his miracles, his redemptive work on the cross, his resurrection, his returning, returning glory. Take your pick. That's what they deny. It demeans to deny Christ by pouring forth speech or teaching. 2 Peter 2 verse 18 tells us these false teachers speak great swelling words of emptiness. We'll look at that more next week in deceiving others. 
And here we'll pause. But next week, we'll be see how these people operate, what their motives are, and some examples from Scripture. And most importantly, we'll see how we can protect ourselves yeah. from their influence. Okay, so part two next week. Amen. Amen.